Well, as I mentioned earlier, we have the privilege of baptizing four brand new members of our church. And uh, my favorite thing about teaching the baptism class and baptizing folks is hearing their personal testimonies of how God saved them, rescued them from their life of sin and transformed them. And I'm sure you would agree that the highlight of our baptism services are the salvation stories, as I like to call them, uh, of those who get baptized. And I thought that in order to prepare our hearts for what we're about to, to witness, what we're about to hear and see, it would be good for us to be reminded of one of the most spectacular salvation stories in the Bible. And I'm referring to the testimony of Saul or the Apostle Paul. Uh, Luke recorded his dramatic conversion in Acts chapter 9, and in two other places in Acts, Luke wrote how Paul shared his salvation story uh, in his own words to a group of Jews and also to Agrippa, one of the political leaders uh, in Paul's day. Paul also shared his testimony uh, two other times, once in his letter to the Galatians and again in his letter to the Philippians. But today I want to consider how Paul shared his testimony the fifth and final time to his most beloved and trusted disciple, Timothy. And we found this account in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And so take your Bibles and turn there to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and follow along with me as I read verses 12 through 17. Again, this is... Paul sharing his personal testimony. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul began this letter to Timothy by urging him to remain steadfast in his task to confront the false teachers who were distorting the truth and hindering God's work in the church in Ephesus. In verse 3, of chapter 1, he says, As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. These teachers of the law, as he refers to them in verse 7, uh, misunderstood the nature and the purpose of the law and legalistically misapplied this to believers uh, there in the church in Ephesus. And in verses 8 through 11, Paul clarified the relationship between the law and the gospel, or as he referred to it as in verse 11, I love this, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. When Paul 
penned that phrase, the glorious gospel, he couldn't help including how the gospel had radically transformed his life. And I think whenever Paul thought about how God had saved him and entrusted him with the awesome responsibility of taking the gospel, the good news of salvation to the Gentiles, it it triggered this overwhelming sense of gratitude in his own heart, especially in light of how he'd been so violently opposed to the gospel and had viciously persecuted the church before he became a Christian. And so he couldn't think of a better illustration of the gloriousness of the gospel than his own radical conversion. And so by relating his personal testimony here in verses 12 through 17, Paul really offered himself as exhibit A of the profound effect of the gospel in a person's life. But he also provided us with a pattern to follow in developing and sharing our own personal testimony. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but but your personal testimony is one of the most effective tools that you can utilize in sharing the gospel with others. Each of us should have a a well-crafted, a well-honed testimony that we're ready to share with anyone, anywhere, anytime. I think it's one of the easiest ways to initiate a conversation about spiritual things. It can serve as a a tactful introduction to the gospel or a helpful illustration of the gospel or even as the very context in which we present the gospel. And sometimes rather than just coming out and telling somebody, hey, you know, you're a sinner and you deserve to die and go to hell and the good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and if you're willing to turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ, you can be forgiven for your sin. I will just tell my story and I'll say it kind of in a second uh, uh, secondhand way, kind of backdoor the gospel, if you will, and say, you know, when I was a young person, I, I understood that I was a sinner and that I, that I was uh, destined for hell, but I also believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth to die in the cross in my place, and God granted me repentance and faith, and, and, and I turned my life uh, to Christ. And so, again, I'm not pointing the finger at them. I'm not telling them what they need to do. I'm simply telling them what God did in my life, but what am I doing? I'm sharing the gospel. And sadly, I think it's, it, it's been my experience, at least, that few Christians seem to be able to clearly articulate to others how they came to know Christ. They've never been taught how to prepare a testimony or never have had the opportunity to maybe practice sharing their testimony in a very safe, non-threatening environment, like an evangelism class, for example. And I think one of the reasons why many of us are perhaps reluctant to share our testimony is because we think it's boring. Those of us maybe that grew up in the church, right? Um, We we all love to hear exciting testimonies of people that were drug dealers or strippers or gang, gang members or prison inmates and how they were dramatically converted to Christ. And we sit on the edge of our seat and we go, wow, that's amazing. I think the potential danger with sensational salvation stories is that those who get saved at a young age without experiencing any dramatic external changes might doubt their salvation simply because they can't testify to some similar radical transformation that took place in their lives. 
or worse, some people who may have lived a comparatively innocent life before their conversion might wish that they had lived a wild life so they could have some really cool story to share. And I think also when a, when a believer shares a crazy testimony, unless great care is taken, the one telling the story about their salvation can become the focus rather than Christ. And so having said all that, I want you to see in this text the three crucial components of a clear, concise, Christ-centered testimony. Three crucial components of a clear, concise, Christ-centered testimony. In other words, our testimony should include three basic parts. Number one, what we were like before we got saved. Number two, when we got saved, the circumstances surrounding that. And then number three, how our life has changed since we got saved. And so we're going to see Paul follow that basic outline. It's the basic outline that we encourage all of our uh, folks that are looking to join Lakeside and they fill out a, a membership application and we give them a, a personal testimony sheet um, that they fill out and it has these three questions. What was your life like before you were saved? When did you get saved? And how has your life changed since you've been saved? We, we do that with all of our baptism candidates. In fact, we, I actually just sent a personal testimony sheet to a prospective family children's pastor that I met this last week in California as we're praying about that, uh, we, 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 we ask them that we want to, we want to know you're saved. We're not, we're not going to assume just because you're a, you want to come be a pastor, right, that you're a Christian. So we want to hear your testimony. And so we ask uh, the guy and his wife to share their testimonies. And they, we use this same format, uh, these three paragraphs. And so Paul uh, here begins by telling us what his life was like before he got saved. Notice he says in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Literally, grateful am I. Almost Yoda-like in his emphasis by placing the verb first in the sentence and emphasize how thankful he really was. The, the, the verb thank also is in the present tense here, which indicates that Paul lived in a continual state of gratitude that God had saved him and called him to serve him. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me. In other words, Christ provided him the, the power, the energy that he needed to accomplish the ministry with which he had been called to and, and entrusted with. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17, he says it this way, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. And of course, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who, what? Strengthens me. He said, so I thank Christ, Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful or trustworthy. God knew that he could trust Paul with significant responsibility because he would be a faithful steward. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, we talked about this last Sunday, that it's required of a steward that he be found trustworthy or faithful. But Paul also understood that Paul's, that, excuse me, his trustworthiness, his faithfulness was not of himself, but it was a gift from God granted to him by God's mercy. 
In other words, it was only by the mercy and the grace of God that he was able to faithfully follow through in his service to Christ. And it's a great reminder for us that it's only by the grace and the mercy of God that any of us remain faithful. And so he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. That word service, diakonai, or diakonoi, that's the the, the word for deacon, right? We, we talked about several weeks ago. It, it's simply a generic term for the role of a servant or a slave. So essentially saying that, that God made me his slave. And again, he was not boasting about what he had done for God, but humbly acknowledging what God had done for him. And it just seems here in verse 1 that Paul just never got over the amazing fact that the Lord had saved him and appointed him as the apostle to the Gentiles, especially in light of what he was like before he was saved. And in the next verse, Paul uses three words to describe his pre-conversion life. And, and these words uh, really are placed in an, an ascending scale of wickedness. In, in other words, it goes from bad to worse. Notice he says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, that he denied that Jesus was the Messiah, and he tried to force Christians to deny that too. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus so that maybe he, he, if, if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 26, in another account where he was sharing his testimony, in Acts chapter 26, verse 9, he says, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So Paul says he was a blasphemer. But then notice back in 1 Timothy he was also a persecutor, that he hunted Christians like a hunter would track down and kill a wild animal. And he would ruthlessly seek to arrest Christians and have them put to death. And so he traveled wherever Christianity spread and he wouldn't rest until this threat to Judaism was completely stamped out. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, after the stoning of Stephen, it says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. And in Galatians one thirteen. in the other place where he shared his testimony, he said, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. 
So he was a blasphemer. He was a, a persecutor. But then notice his last phrase, and a violent aggressor. I mean, he was just plain sadistic. He loved to inflict pain on Christians, and he took some sick pleasure in, in committing brutal acts against unbelievers. And he deliberately mistreated them and wronged them just, just for the sake of hurting them and humiliating them. And so we see here the first part of a, of a clear, concise, Christ-centered testimony is admitting what kind of person you were before you got saved. And we don't necessarily have to be specific and share all the gory details of our sinful lifestyle, but there must be a, a general confession of our sinfulness and recognition of our lostness, which sets up the second part of our testimony, and that is when we got saved. And that's what Paul talks about next in verses 13 through 15. Notice he says, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I mean, how does a how does a vicious murderer become the greatest missionary the world has ever known? How, how does the most notorious persecutor of the church become the most notable preacher and planter of churches ever? It's, it's the sheer mercy and grace of God. Notice he says, and I was shown mercy, which is God's pity and compassion which motivates him to not give us what we deserve. Paul deserved God's wrath, but instead he received God's mercy. I mean, Christ could have, should have struck him dead in his tracks on the Damascus Road as he was heading to go persecute and arrest other Christians, and yet instead he saved him. Why? Well, Paul said, because I was acting ignorantly in unbelief. Even though Paul was a, a brilliant, well-educated man, Satan has blinded his mind to the truth, and he actually thought that by killing Christians, he was doing God's work. And I think he was the, the classic example of the kind of people that Jesus warned the disciples about in John 16, 2, when he said, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Paul thought he was serving God by killing Christians. That's how ignorant he was. And Stephen's dying prayer, if you remember that in Acts chapter 7, as he was being stoned, I think applied most to the man who stood in the background holding the coats of those who were stoning him. Remember Stephen in Acts 7 Verse 60 said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, which was very Christ-like, by the way. This is, was what Jesus prayed on the cross. Father, forgive them for they, why? They don't know what they're doing, for they know not what they do. And so Paul didn't have a clue what he was doing. He was acting ignorantly in unbelief. Now, Paul wasn't excusing his sin or saying that not knowing what he was doing somehow made him not guilty of what he did. He was just simply saying that God dealt with him mercifully because he acted in ignorance. 
And God, God not only showed him mercy, he showed him grace. Notice verse 14. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. We know God's grace is his unearned and undeserved kindness and favor. If, if mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. And Paul got way more than he ever deserved. Notice he says, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. And the word in the Greek there is huper, from where we get our English word hyper, hyperactive or hypersensitive. It's an exceedingly abundant amount is the idea, literally, that he showed his super abundant grace to me. God provided more than enough grace to cover Paul's past sins. He mentioned this in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, you can't out-sin God's grace. And so God's grace overflowed into Paul's life and washed away his unbelief and his hatred and caused faith and love to grow in their place. Notice he says that I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. So his ignorance and unbelief gave way to faith. He placed his trust, his hope, his confidence in the one who he had so adamantly denied. And his prejudice and his hatred, his rage and his cruelty gave way to love. And he began loving the one whom he had so wickedly hated. And he went from hating Christians to loving Christians went from killing them to serving them, being, will, being willing to be killed for them. And then notice verse 15. This is a familiar phrase if you're uh, a student of the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and, and, and Titus. Uh, this is a unique, unique phrase that's only found in the pastoral epistles. It's used five times. Um, to, to highlight a, a, a summary statement of some key doctrine or principle that should be believed implicitly, without reservation, without hesitation. And so whenever you see that, it is a trustworthy statement, get ready, because Paul's about to say something good, and, and he wants you to believe it without reservation or without hesitation. And what he goes on to say after that is, is basically he gives a doctrinal summary of the incarnation and the atonement of Christ. He gives a condensed version of the gospel. And I think th this statement, this next phrase, summarizes the essence of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel message right here. He says, it is a trustworthy statement, here it is, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 
Jesus Christ, who eternally existed with the Father as the second member of the Trinity, willingly left the glories of heaven and came to earth and took on the form of man and perfectly lived a life that we all failed to live and humbly died to death that we all deserve to die. And Christ lived and he died as a sinless substitute for sinners like you and like me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In fact, the angel who announced the birth of Christ to Joseph said just that. She will bear a son, talking about Mary. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then I love how Luke really summarizes his entire gospel with this simple phrase, simple verse. This is Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man, Jesus, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That, that summarizes the whole purpose of why Jesus Christ came to this earth, to seek and to save that which was lost. Not to help us save ourselves, nor enable us to save ourselves, he came to save us, period. To do what none of us could do by ourselves. William MacDonald, who has authored that excellent one-volume commentary, the Believer's Bible Commentary, I'd encourage all of you to have a copy of that in your home. It's just a great reference. But this is what he said. He said, false religions... Tell man that there is something he can do or be in order to win favor with God. False religions tell a man that there is something he can do or be in order to win favor with God. The gospel tells man that he is a sinner, that he is lost, that he cannot save himself, and that the only way he can get to heaven is through the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. The type of law teaching, which Paul described earlier in this text, tells man exactly what they want to hear, namely that he can somehow contribute to his own salvation. But the gospel insists that all the glory for the work of salvation must go to Christ alone, that man does nothing but the sinning, and that the Lord Jesus does all the saving. So you did have a part in your salvation. You brought the sin to the table. And Christ took care of the rest. Notice how Paul ends verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. So Paul was quick to include himself here in the category of of sinners who Christ came to save. In fact, he went beyond that and he considered himself to be the worst sinner of all. And this is, this is present tense here. This is not used to be. I used to be the worst sinner I know. No, I still am the worst sinner I know. It's like the shirt Andrew's wearing this morning. It says, righteous wretch. And that's true. Just because you got saved doesn't change the fact that you're a wretch. Other than the fact now you're a righteous wretch. You're at the same time a sinner and a saint. And again, it's the 
it's the really the the uh, I guess the catch twenty two of the of the Christian life. It's the the irony of the Christian life. And you might think that Paul was 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 uh, maybe guilty of false humility here, or just maybe overstating it, being kind of exaggerating here, a little sanctified exaggeration. But no, this was the honest conviction of a genuinely humble man who felt unworthy to be a Christian. In fact, you see this progression in Paul's writings, which I think follows the progression of his personal testimony and his, his progressive sanctification. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he describes himself as the least of the apostles and then in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he calls himself the least of the saints. And now here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he calls himself the chief of all sinners. And I think those of us who walk with the Lord, the, the longer we walk with the Lord, the closer we get to the Lord we are more aware of our sin and unworthiness. Is that true? The more godly we become, the more conscious we become of how sinful we really are. It's like you've all had this experience, I'm sure, sitting in, a, in, in your own living room perhaps or maybe in a, in a waiting room in a hospital or a, 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 a doctor's office or a dental office and you're sitting there and, and you're just breathing the air and everything looks clear and clean, but all of a sudden the sunlight shines into the window, and what do you see floating through the air? All this dust and all these impurities that you, you didn't know were there until the sun shined on them. And I think in the same way, as we draw nearer to Christ and the light of his holiness shines more into our lives, more and more impurities are revealed. Things that we didn't even know were there are there. And so again, the paradox of, of progressive sanctification is the closer we get to Christ, the sometimes the, the further away we feel from him. Or instead of feeling like we're making some progress uh, in, in mortifying sin, it seems like we're, we're sinning more than ever. Well, it's not that you're sinning more, it's just you're seeing your sin more than you ever have, which is a good thing. And so the second part of a clear, concise, Christ-centered testimony is describing how God graciously and mercifully saved us. The circumstances surrounding our conversion. Where were we? What did we hear? What, uh, what was said to us? Um, fill in the blank, right? And, and I think this is a, a perfect place in our testimony to give a summary of the gospel like Paul did, so that others not only know what we understood and what we believe, but also, more importantly, what they need to understand and what they need to believe. And again, it's easier to share the gospel because the gospel has some hard truths that you've got to share about sin and death and hell and God's wrath. It's a whole lot easier sharing those within the context of your testimony rather than just coming right out and saying, hey, this is the, the truth. Now, we still need to do that, 
And at times, that's the best approach. But again, if you're using the approach of your testimony, as God provides you those opportunities, weave the gospel into your testimony. And this is the, this is the, the paragraph to do it, if you will, that center section, which leads into the final part or paragraph of our testimony, how our life is changed or has been changed or is changing since we've been saved. So in verses 16 and 17, Paul explains how his life changed after he got saved. Notice he says, yet, verse 16, for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. It's sort of like the old advice that was, you know, some dads gave, you know, to their kids before they got saved. I'm talking about before the dads got saved, right? Hey, if you get picked on on the playground, son, you find the biggest, strongest looking guy and go punch him straight in the head. Punch him right in the mouth. Knock the big guy out, right? And what, what's going to happen to all the other guys? They're all going to run away, right? Now, hopefully you're not giving that advice to your sons, but I'm just saying, right? That's kind of the world's mindset is you pick the biggest, baddest looking dude, and if they know, everybody knows you can take that guy out, they're going to take off. They're not going to want anything to do with you. And so what does Paul say? Yet for this reason, what reason? Because I was the foremost of all. I was the worst sinner on the planet. And the reason why God saved me was to motivate others to place their faith in Christ by providing them an unforgettable illustration of his mercy and his patience. I love this. He said that Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience, which is how God responds, by the way, to all of rebellious mankind. He is so patient. And this is a divine attribute. This is one of God's attributes where where he does not punish people immediately for their sin, but he puts up with them and gives them time to repent. Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You wouldn't still be breathing if it weren't for God's patience in your life. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness, some would say, well, well, yeah, he said he was coming back. Now, yeah, he hadn't come back in what, this going on 2,000 years plus? Yeah, right. Well, he's not slow about his promise, as some count slow, slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Christ is holding out from his return so that more of us will get saved. And less people will have to go to hell. But notice he says here, again, 1 Timothy, verse 16, for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. That word example means a, a pattern, 
or a sample or a prototype or a model. So Paul was simply saying the, 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 I as the worst sinner became the best example of God's ability to save. He was the extreme example of a sinner saved by grace. The, the ultimate sinner transformed into the ultimate saint. God's fiercest enemy turned into his finest servant. And he was living, breathing proof that God can save anyone. And I think Paul's testimony stands forever as evidence that, that no one is ever beyond God's grace. I mean, Paul was worst case scenario. I mean, no one could be considered more of a lost cause than Paul. And I'm, I'm pointing this out because I know some of you have family members or friends or coworkers or classmates that you've often thought, oh man, they will never get saved. I mean, they are just, they are just too far gone. But I think it's good for us to be reminded that Paul's conversion was so spectacular that many Christians had a hard time believing it at first. They're like, no way. We're not buying that. Paul or Saul, the, the, the persecutor of the church, is now a, a brother or sister in Christ? Yeah, I don't think so. They, they suspected it was some kind of trick, but it was real. You may be sitting here not thinking of anyone else, but you're thinking of yourself. Maybe thinking you've done something that God will never forgive you for, that, that there's no way that God would ever save you. And I would just say this, that no matter how sinful you are or how far away from God you may have wandered, there is still hope for you too. You too can find grace and mercy and receive forgiveness for your sin by coming to Christ in repentance and faith. God simply requires that you admit that you're a sinner separated from him and that you can do nothing to save yourself and be willing to turn from your sinful rebellion and believe that the only way that you can be forgiven for your sin and be reconciled to the God that you've rebelled against all these years is through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, and then commit your life to follow and obey him as your Lord and master. This is good news, isn't it? We're praying... This morning, we have been praying that God will use the five testimonies that are going to be shared today, four here, one here, to maybe bring someone in this room to Christ today. That you're going to hear the, the gospel five times. You're going to see five examples. You're seeing one right now. You're about to see four more illustrations, examples of, of lives that have been transformed by the grace and mercy of God in his son, Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul ends his testimony here. As he was pondering God's amazing grace in his life, he was so overwhelmed 
that it prompted him to burst out in one of his typical doxologies, which is a, a short prayer of praise and adoration to God. And so Paul was really unable to comprehend the grace of God that had been shown to him, and he couldn't contain himself, and all reasoning stopped, and there was nothing left to do but just to praise God. Uh, he could find no other words to express his gratitude, so he just, he just praised God's attributes which had been put on display in saving him. Notice he says here now, to the king, the one who reigns sovereign over human history, who directs and controls everything that, everything that happens according to his predetermined goals and plans, controls every detail of our lives to the king. And then he gave four descriptions of this king or God. The king eternal. The fact that he's always been there, he always will be there. He's immortal. He's not mortal like us, in other words. He's, he, 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 he never changes. He's incorruptible. He's imperishable. He, he never experiences death or decay. He never goes weary or tired. He's immortal. He's immutable. And then he's invisible. And this is talking about the fact that God is, is a spirit. You, you can't see him. He made himself visible in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 it makes that very clear. Paul said it this way in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. And then notice he says at the end, the only God. The only God. He's, he's incomparable, incomparable. He's exclusive. There, there's only one true God. And to him belong the honor and the glory forever. Paul's wish, his desire, his passion is that God alone would receive the praise and the honor and the glory for salvation and for the salvation of everyone he chooses to extend his grace. And then we come to that word, amen. We sang about it in the first song we sang this morning, amen, so be it, let it be so. Do you, do, you, do you get the sense here that Paul never got over his salvation? He, he never lost the wonder that God had saved someone as wretched as he was? How about you? Have you lost the, the wonder that you are a righteous wretch? When's the last time you reflected on where you came from and where you are today as a result of Christ's work in your life? I was thinking about this. This is one of the ordinances of the church. There's only two, communion and baptism. Communion is the God-ordained opportunity to remember and reflect on the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross to save us. Baptism is the God-ordained opportunity to remember and reflect on what we once were before we were saved and what we are now because of God's saving grace in our lives. 
So this is not just a day to celebrate with these four folks who are getting baptized. This is a day to celebrate our own salvation and to remember and recall, and hopefully you'll hear, right, even as you have, we've listened to our first testimony of the day, Paul's testimony, you've heard things that maybe uh, sparked reminders of, of your story, your salvation story, that there was some commonality uh, in your life as there was in the Apostle Paul. You will hear some other uh, common storylines, if you will. Even though God is, you know, saves all of us in radically different ways, through, through radically different means, that there are some common themes and, and hopefully as you hear these testimonies, you listen to these testimonies, it'll remind you of your salvation story, of something that God did in your life that was similar to what he did in these folks' lives. And, and it will cause you to well up with, with great gratitude in your heart. Some of you know the testimony of John Bunyan, the one who wrote, the man, the, the, the Puritan, English Puritan that wrote um, Pilgrim's Progress. His autobiography, where he basically shares his testimony, is called um, Abounding Grace or Boundless Grace to the Chief of Sinners. So, so Paul, or excuse me, John Bunyan found commonality in his testimony with, with, with Saul or Paul's testimony. Grace abounding, that's what it's called, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Which, by the way, is all of our story, amen? And so let me pray, and then we'll get a chance to hear these testimonies. Father, thank you for radically saving Saul, who we know today as Paul, who is so much the example for our Christian lives, and to think about where he came from, where he started, and just your amazing grace in his life is truly astounding. And uh, thank you that you, that that same power that you apply to saving Paul, you applied to save these four folks who are about to share their testimonies, and, and you applied to save every one of us who are saved in this room. Same God, same Jesus, same Savior, same grace, same mercy, same patience. And so I pray that as we spend time witnessing these baptisms that our, all of our hearts would be um, filled with gratitude and, and, and praise and thanksgiving, that there would be a, a, a doxology in our own hearts rising up to want to praise you and thank you for our salvation. And we know that it's all through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.